It's Tuesday, July 20th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. On Mondays and Wednesdays, my co-host Rebecca Darst and I talk about the news. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we bring you guest interviews. Today, it's an interview on climate change. So far in the summer of 2021, we've seen record-breaking heat, massive floods, enormous wildfires, and severe drought. My guest today is Alice Hill. She's the author of the upcoming book, The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. She started her career as a federal prosecutor, became a judge, and from there, with stops along the way, became a special assistant to President Obama. She was charged with helping develop policy regarding national security and climate change. She currently serves as a senior fellow for climate change policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Without further ado, Here's my interview with Alice Hill. Hello, Alice. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. We appreciate your taking the time. Oh, thank you. It's my honor and pleasure. In your book, you say that 2020 was not just the year of the pandemic. It was the year of climate. I wanted to ask you, what was it about 2020 that led you to write that or think that? Well, of course, we had this pandemic racing across the globe, but the planet was also pummeled by a variety of events that are worsened by climate change. And that would include extreme drought. We also saw the highest wind speeds for a typhoon in the Philippines, 195 miles per hour when the typhoon hit made landfall. We saw 30 named storms. That means it's large storms in the Atlantic Basin. So many storms that meteorologists had to turn to the Greek alphabet to name them. (laughs) Of course, we saw wildfires in Australia that killed approximately 3 billion animals. Saw devastating wildfires in the American West. Over 10 million acres burned, uh, an amount that... One meteorologist who watches a lot of this called Surreal. And then we saw various impacts of flooding hitting China. It was a big year. It also carried a big price tag, over $210 billion worth of losses, according to one major reinsurance company. One of the things that strikes me, I I was reading a column by uh, Wolfgang Munchau in the Bureau Intelligence Newsletter. And he said, when it comes to climate change, it's not the averages that you should look at. It's the statistics themselves. You know, it's not the average temperature. It's the temperature that day or that month or that year. Is that the right way to look at it? It's an excellent point. I can think of myself. I I lived in Los Angeles for many years. And when I first heard about climate change, of course, I didn't realize that when we talked about two degrees, we were talking about two degrees Celsius, not Fahrenheit. Uh, And also in Los Angeles, what's the difference? Two degrees more. What does it matter? I was thinking about global average warming, not understanding that that kind of heat, first of all, doesn't fall evenly. So we see the Arctic warming at least twice as fast as the rest of the world, which is having dramatic impacts on weather. But also that warming carries consequences that might not be appreciated by people who don't study meteorology, but it carries significant damage when those impacts come in. And that's what's not appreciated when you talk about average temperatures rising. It's really about what what does that mean? What does that translate into? And it translates into very much more severe hazards than 
human experience has previously seen. It's the extremes, and we're seeing that in the heat waves. They're longer and they're more intense. So the first chapter really is about a failure of imagination because of the way humans deal with things. If it's out there in the future, it's therefore something that can be dealt with in the future. And you make the point that that's no longer tenable. Up until, I don't know, up until I read your book, I thought of climate change policy as mitigation. You say that's not nearly enough. Walk us through mitigation and what that means. Most of the attention when there's a discussion about climate change still turns to the issue of how do we cut our emissions? Because after all, it's the result of human-caused emissions that we're seeing temperatures rise. That's from the carbon dioxide that we have uh, been emitting since uh, the Industrial Revolution. And as that accumulates, it warms up the planet. So rightfully, scientists, policymakers have said, we've got to cut those emissions so we can cut the temperature rise. But during all the years of debating this, talking about different solutions, we've neglected to focus on the fact that the emissions that we've already put into the atmosphere are causing severe impacts, extremes that have never been experienced already. And an important point that is often missed is that we will continue to experience worsening impacts even if we are successful in cutting our emissions to zero. That's because of the delayed impact that the accumulation in the atmosphere of greenhouse gases, it just takes a while for the heating to occur, which will continue to happen even if we got our emissions down. You know, in Death Valley, the very aptly named Death Valley, two years in a row, we've seen the highest temperatures ever reliably recorded in the world, 130 degrees Fahrenheit. That carries a message. Things are getting worse, but most policymakers haven't picked up on that yet. And we need to adapt to these new extremes to remain safe. And that's a big theme of your book, obviously, is adaptation. Adaptation means what? It means adjusting to changed conditions. So, and humans adapt all through history. When water runs low, communities move. When there's an earthquake, communities often decide to build back stronger. So we adapt. The challenge is our adaptations have looked to the past to guide what will make us safe in the future. If you do that with climate change, you're not going to be safe because the future will not resemble the past. You're going to have a longer heat wave. You're going to have deeper droughts, bigger wildfires that carry their own weather, and these huge amounts of precipitation falling all at once. Emergency managers call them rain bombs. And we just haven't built our cities, our towns, our communities to withstand these kinds of events. So we see cascading failures. You see it saw it in Texas, extremes of cold hit, and that Texan grid was not prepared and people died in their beds because they did not have heat. Adaptation is really a subset of resilience. Resilience is the broader concept that a community needs to be able to absorb these impacts, recover from them, and bounce back. It's also, in the United States, a less politically loaded term than adaptation, because adaptation is almost always linked with climate change. Resilience is linked to earthquakes, it's linked to right. a variety of different things. So we saw politicians 
latch on to that word uh, in a very serious way very quickly because it was less politically toxic for them to talk about it. That goes to the need for what you call preparedness. Just tell the listeners what preparedness looks like. There's sort of preparedness in the way that I would think about it, which is, you know, you sort of put sandbags and hope that the flood doesn't over, overwhelm those sandbags or whatever. But when you talk about preparedness, what are you talking about? It's largely community preparedness. Look, each of us can make our individual choices to have ourselves be prepared. But these events are so big that none of us can keep ourselves safe from them without taking at least community-wide action. And that could mean a seawall to prevent a storm surge. It could mean saying some areas shouldn't be developed because they're too at risk of being burned. It would be unsafe for people to live there. It could mean just simply raising houses higher so that floodwaters can wash through. And that's been a a basic adaptation over time, but now we need to be higher because the storm surge is bigger and we're seeing houses get knocked down. The important thing for everyone to remember as we make these choices, yes, there could be a modest cost involved in raising a house or bolting down the the roof so that winds don't blow it off. Hmm. But for every dollar we spend in reducing risk, we save somewhere between six and the last study said $13 in recovery. That is a cost-benefit analysis that we should all take advantage of because if we invested in reducing risk now, adapting now to these future climate impacts, we'd save ourselves a lot of pain, save lives, a lot of money as well. And following that, I'm sort of perplexed why the insurance complex isn't out front on preparing us all for, you know, for the impact of climate change. I don't, I, you know, I have Everybody has insurance. I never get anything from my insurance company about preparing for climate change. Am I wrong about that? Or is that something that is perplexing to you as well? Well, initially it was perplexing, but I've spent a lot of time on this issue now. I do chair a working group for the California Department of Insurance looking at climate change and insurance. And all of us have to understand that uh, the model of insurance is that insurance companies write policies on a one-year basis. Mm -hmm. So your home insurance gets renewed every year. Well, if the risks get too high, the insurance company may decide, I don't want to take that risk anymore. And they will tell you, we're not going to renew you. And in fact, that's what's happening right now in California in wildfire-prone areas. The commissioner of insurance in California has told insurance companies, you can't cut off people. You can't decide not to renew them if they're in these areas of risk. He's imposed that moratorium for two years running. It will lift in October. In October, we could see insurance companies saying, we're done. We don't want to be writing policies in California. The wildfire risk is too high. We saw that scenario play out in Florida in 1992 when Hurricane Andrew just swept across the state, flattening neighborhoods and insurance companies went bankrupt. And they said, we don't want to write these risks. So that's why the California Department of Insurance is trying to figure out how do we help these private insurers who write on an annualized basis want to continue to write policies? Do we make the home stronger? Do we do more fire prevention? And then you have, in addition to 
your primary insurer, the one that you go and buy your policy for for your home, you have reinsurance companies right. that insure the insurance companies. Right. Now, the reinsurance companies are very concerned about climate change. I can imagine. Because in the long run, business will shrink for them unless these primary insurers, the, the ones that write the annual policies, figure out how to survive and thrive in a world that's warmer. So in California, let's say the, the moratorium is lifted in October and the insurance company says to you, you know, Alice, sorry, but we're not going to renew. Then your bank says, well, pay up because, you know, we don't underwrite loans that are not insured. That's policy at the bank. Is that right? Well, actually, California has a backup system, which is present in many states called the FAIR plan. But in some states that are at wildfire risk, for example, Colorado, they do not have this plan. Right. So if the insurer cuts you off, you may not be able to find insurance, which would have an effect on the real estate market, could have an effect on your loan if your uh, bank found out about it. But in California and other states, there's this thing called the FAIR plan, which if you can't get insurance elsewhere, you can go into this FAIR plan. You will pay higher rates, but it's pooled among all the insurers. Right. But that that backup plan is now growing in size to become much more of the primary plan, never intended to be that. And uh, if insurance companies decide to leave the state, puts huge stress on that fair plan because there are far fewer insurance companies contributing. So that's not how you want to go forward. But as insurance companies leave, we've seen that the government may decide to step in. That's what happened with flood insurance. And that's why we have this federal flood insurance program, which is essentially bankrupt now because it's too risky in some places to insure these homes. Yikes. I mean, it it then just becomes another giant unfunded liability, right? Yes. And it has very dire consequences to the real estate market. And then also many communities are hit harder because of redlining and loan bank loans. We find that Marginalized communities have been forced into places that are at greater risk of flooding, less desirable areas, and they may be at the highest risk of losing insurance coverage, which would further exacerbate income inequality. You talk about weaving tighter safety nets, but what does that, what does that mean, weaving tighter safety nets? It means we need to find ways to support people so that they can thrive even as these impacts come in. So an example of that would be forecast-based insurance. If you hear a forecast that there's going to be a terrible typhoon, this is in in the Philippines, they've issued insurance policies that put money into people's bank accounts before the typhoon hits so that they can get the necessary supplies, they can protect their homes so that the damage is less going forward. And we need to expand those types of policies, including here to the United States, where many people lack even $2,000 to evacuate. If you think about evacuation, you've got to pay for a motel, you've got to have transportation, you're going to have extra costs. We need to help those who cannot afford this be able to front it so they can get to safety and then secure their uh, belongings if necessary, secure their homes. One of the things we see is if we don't do that, And for example, in developing countries, these disasters hit very hard. Children are pulled out of school, food becomes scarce, the livelihood is lost for the family, maybe the family home. And then we see that those people are on the move. 
And if you think about Central America, that's pretty much what we're seeing right now headed to the United States southern border. Right, and Sub-Saharan Africa, obviously, as well, right? To Europe, yes. Yeah. And they, uh, Syria, there was a 1,200-year drought, the worst year, drought in 1,200 years, which caused many young men to be on the move and caused civil unrest and 5 million Syrians on the move, uh, which was highly challenging for Europe. But that's just a fraction of the numbers of people that will be on the move, it's believed, as a result of climate change. All right, let's take a short break. and We'll be right back to talk climate change with Alice Hill. Welcome back to News Items. Alice? One thing that I hear from people about climate change is that, you know, very clever scientists from UCAL Berkeley and MIT and other leading academic institutions will figure out the technology that's, you know, will save us all in the end. So shouldn't really worry that much. Is that even remotely true or is that just wishful thinking? Well, I think we do need to focus on the technology. There's two major types of technology that we're talking about on the cutting emissions side. Both are called geoengineering. One is, to my mind, absolutely terrifying. It's shooting sulfur into the atmosphere to stop warming. It's a little bit like a volcano, uh, that when you have, see the sulfur there, you'll see that the earth cools. That's one idea. You have to keep doing that repeatedly. We don't really know how that would work, but that's kind of jiggering the broader climate to make it cooler. And I think there's hesitancy whether we have any kind of understanding of what that would look like. We have no system, by the way, internationally to oversee that. So a billionaire could be engaged in this without us possibly knowing about it already. On the other side, there's a form of engineering, which is carbon capture and storage. It's got a variety of terms where you try to suck the carbon that's already in the atmosphere out. You try to capture it in some way through your uh, different processes. And that the International Energy Administration has said that has to be a part of the solution here. We can't get to our goals of keeping below 1.5 degrees or two degrees without doing that. The challenge is that that technology is not viable yet. It's not economically viable yet. It's not widely used. So there would have to be major investments and there have been calls by, on a bipartisan basis for that type of investment. Some progressives oppose it because they believe, as you've said, it's pie in the sky. It's just not gonna happen. We haven't proved it yet. It's, we shouldn't be relying on it. But it certainly would assist in these challenges if we were able to be successful in it. What about nuclear as far as energy needs go? I believe that in the short term, nuclear does need to be a part of this. But for me, one of the challenges with nuclear is whether nuclear is adapted to the changed conditions. And this is particularly acute for existing nuclear fleet that was built in the 70s, 80s. Uh, and that fleet was built at a time where nobody was thinking about climate impacts and climate impacts have already threatened existing facilities. One easy fix that people point to is let's just extend the licenses of these existing nuclear plants. If we do that without figuring out whether they're vulnerable to climate impacts, we could have a terrible disaster on our hands. And we've come close in a number of instances. So again, there's no international governance of this issue yet. And it's one that needs attention. 
given the Biden administration's commitment on this, is there the beginning of a sort of multifaceted response more in line with your book than UN goals and so on and so forth? Well, the Biden administration is working hard. They have a very difficult task given our political divide on this issue, and they are making great progress. But there are some things I would love to see they would do immediately. One of the very first ones is to create a national adaptation plan or resilience plan. We do not have one. And without one, we are at risk of simply sort of sprinkling different things and money, federal money across the continent without really tackling the very hard issues. And in fact, that's what the Government Accountability Office has said, the GAO. It has criticized the federal government for not having a strategy and says we're just at risk of wasting our resources in little tiny projects that don't address this huge escalating, accelerating risk that needs some big solutions. When you go around and speak about this, I assume at all sorts of different kinds of functions, whether it's at a Council on Foreign Relations event or you're speaking to a private company's lunch or whatever it might be, are people nodding their heads and following you along or are they just like, oh my God, I don't want to think about this? I would say in the past, the audience resembled the one uh, you described where I don't really know what to think of this. It's not doesn't really affect me. I'm not concerned. I would say that particularly among the younger generation, I have seen lots more interest, far more questions. They are far better informed. Uh, and frankly, some of them are angry, uh, very politely expressed to me, but angry at my generation, the baby boomers, for leaving them with a problem that's irreversible and so damaging. I've also seen that the private sector is far more interested in finding solutions, also finding opportunities to make money, but they are less knowledgeable. And one of the major challenges that we have in the United States is that Many of our leaders, including those that sit on the boards of our largest corporations, do not have what I call climate literacy. We also don't have many board members in our major corporations who have any background in the environment. There was a study by NYU Stern Business School in 2019 of 1,188 directors in our Fortune 100 companies of that 1,188, just five, not 5%, just five, had any identifiable background in climate change according to a review of their resumes. Now we just described this huge accelerating risk and we don't see that there's people that understand what is at stake in the core decision-making group. We also see of the top 100 universities in the United States, a very small likelihood that any student would take a single class in climate change. Few universities have climate change majors. We have Stanford just creating its first, I'm a Stanford grad, first school of sustainability, the first school it's created in 60 years. 
But the uh, academic world has also been slow to work on making sure that we have the workforce that understands what at stake. So then you go into the federal government, right. we may not have leaders there either who understand climate change because they haven't had the opportunity to learn about it yet. In the course of your work on all this over many years now and the writing of this book, when you look out at the future, I mean, are you completely freaked out? Or are you cautiously optimistic? How would you describe your view of where we are and what it looks like, what the monster coming at us looks like? Well, day to day, I bring enormous excitement of this. So I wake up pretty much every day. I want to see what more we can do. And an evangelical friend told me, who works on this issue, that he felt great joy from the work. And I thought, wow, that is what I feel. Because there's so many opportunities to have different outcomes if we apply ourselves, think creatively, and be innovative. With that said, these impacts are coming very quickly. In fact, I think the criticism of the models would be not that the models were wrong as to what it would happen. They may have been off on how quickly it would happen. Right. And this particularly resonated with me just a few days ago. There was a draft report leaked about an area that I love, which is the Sequoia uh, National Park. Right. I have gone there for years and years. And the Park Service believes that one fire in 2020 killed 10% of the nation's sequoia trees. Wow. Sequoias are fire adapted. They last for 3,000 years. They survived wildfires, but the wildfires we're experiencing are so hot and so different from wildfires of the past that the largest living thing in the United States and the world is destroyed by these new wildfires. That caused me pause. It also made me want to redouble my efforts to try to get everyone to understand this is an all-hands-on-deck problem, and we need to work. This needs to be a primary focus. What do we do to have better outcomes with climate change? You dedicate this book to your parents and to your sisters. Yes. And I wondered, so it's Thanksgiving, and there they are, and you haven't arrived yet. Do they say, oh, my God, Alice is coming, and she's going to talk about climate change? Or do they say, can't wait for Alice to get here? Well, I hope they say, can't wait for Alice to get here. But then they will say, do you have the timer available? She talks too much about climate change. She's on the timer. And that's a true story with my family. I am on the timer. They actually put you on the clock. Yeah. They're like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> so that's the truth. But I would say, you know, a bell curve. I'm far out on the bell curve, how much I talk about climate change. One of the biggest challenges is that we see in our polling, most people don't talk about climate change even once a week. And they also don't believe it will affect them, which is just false. All of us could be in a heat wave that, and the power fails and we're at great risk. We're seeing temperatures where the human body cannot survive if we're outdoors for more than six hours. The level of humidity is so high and the temperatures are so high that our mechanism to cool perspiration will not work and people die. That's why you're seeing a significant number of deaths being reported from the Pacific Northwest, those right. are excess deaths as a result of climate change. So any of us could be caught in a heat wave. If it can happen in Canada, it can happen anywhere here. And that could be a deathly experience for us if our power fails. And we've already seen that 
Our power grid is not prepared to operate in extreme temperatures, either high or low. So we should all expect that we could be impacted by climate change and we should all be concerned. What are we gonna do to make sure that we're all safe? I really thank you for your time. It's been illuminating to say the least. And uh, we urge all of our listeners to read Alice's book, which is called The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. Thank you, Alice, for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items Podcast. I should add that Alice's book is not out yet, but it will be on September 1st. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was and is the great Simran Singh.